Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 14. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 20 in this audio. Our context is this, Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey. John Mark having left them at Perga on the coast of southern Asia Minor. And Paul and Barnabas had continued straight up the center of Asia Minor in the, in the area of Galatia in the province of Pisidia, where they went to Pisidia and Antioch, which is covered in Acts 13. They had some converts there, a lot of preaching. There was a long, a, a detailed account is given of the activities in Pisidia and Antioch. They left there. They were persecuted out of there, actually. And they went to Iconium, which is a little bit south and east of Pisidia and Antioch. It's right dead center of Galatia, and Galatia is the dead center region of Asia Minor, Asia being to the west and Cappadocia being to the east. That's where we are now. We'll start with verse 1. The same thing happened in Iconium. They entered the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Same thing happened. They went to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, and they got Greek people, Jews people believing and Greek people believing. And you might say, well, how is going to a synagogue going to get Greek people believing? But it's because, well, there's a split of opinion on this, but in my opinion, as Adam Clark and Jameson Foss and Brown say, that they would be Hellenistic Jews in the synagogue. Gentiles in general would not be in there. Just your average Gentile would not be, but proselytes to the Jewish faith would be Greek proselytes. And so that's who they got saved. John Gill, on the other hand, says that they they were not Hellenistic Jews, they were not proselytes, they were just your average Greeks, heathen Greeks. Because, Gill says, Hellenistic Jews were called Hellenists, not Greeks. Well, I won't argue with the scholars there. People got saved, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, where is Iconium? As I mentioned, it's to the south and east of Pisidian Antioch. It's the modern Kanya in present-day Turkey. It was an important crossroads and an agricultural center right there in the central plain of the province of Galatia. We go to verse 2 in Acts 14. But the Jews who refused to believe, this is in Iconium, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. Now, who are those brothers? It's either Paul and Barnabas, or it's all the brothers in general at Iconium because they were converts there. And the Jews continue their persecution from synagogue to synagogue, as Jesus said they would do in Israel. And they're keeping it up, poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. Not just their fellow Jews, but the Gentiles also. Acts 14.3 So they stayed there for some time, Paul and Barnabas did, stayed there for some time and spoke boldly in reliance on the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by granting that signs and wonders be performed through them. Testified, that's witnessed to, that's giving credible evidence for. How? Signs and wonders. And this is all through the book of Acts, all through the Gospels, the message of the Lord Jesus Christ was constantly testified to by signs and wonders. And if we would adopt that attitude in the modern church, as many evangelists have, there would be gobs more converts, in my humble opinion. The major purpose of miracles actually was to confirm the word of the apostles. Signs and wonders following them, confirming the word, as it says in Hebrews. I think it's chapter 4 somewhere, somewhere in there. I forgot, somewhere in the first part of Hebrews. What's the results of all these signs and wonders? A great number of people got saved, as we see in Acts 14.1. I didn't emphasize that when I was on this verse, but let me say it here. The, they entered the 
Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So they had a great number of Jews and Greeks believed by the way they spoke and noticed that they spoke in reliance on the Lord who gave signs and wonders. So it was not only the teaching in the synagogues, not only the teaching of the apostles, but also the signs and wonders worked through the apostles. The Word and the Spirit working together in, harm in harmony, not in opposition to one another, as unfortunately has happened today in the Church of America. Notice that Paul and Barnabas stayed there in Iconium despite the fact that they were being persecuted. Persecuted. They didn't mind the persecuted. They stood the heat. It wasn't so bad that they couldn't stay in the city and keep evangelizing. Acts 14, 4 through 5. But the people of the city, again, this is Iconium, the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, notice that apostles here. Who were the apostles on this trip? That's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is called an apostle here, even though he was not one of the original 12. He was a missionary. The apostle is the English transliteration of the a Latin word apostolos, sent one. Missionary is the English transliteration of the Greek word for sent one. So an apostle equals a missionary. That's all it was, and that's what Paul was. But we have so many, uh, Paul and Barnabas both were, but we have so many connotations and linguistic baggage hanging off words like apostles and missionaries, it's hard to get the full impact of what we, of what is meant by the original language here. It's just someone who sent goes around starting and strengthening churches and doing evangelism. That's what apostles were. They didn't have to be one of the original 12. I have a friend who distinguishes the original 12. He calls them capital A apostles and then Paul and Barnabas, little a apostles. Uh, little a apostles, which is okay. The NIV Study Bible notes this distinction. Now notice that the city is divided despite that wonderful teaching that was done in the synagogue so that many people believed and despite the fact that there were signs and miracles following there was still opposition. Jesus didn't come to bring peace to the world with a sword. That verse is so misunderstood. He came to bring peace between God and man, God and believers, and between believer and believer. But he did not come to bring peace between unbelievers and believers. And here we have an example of it. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, they're joined together in their persecution. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, the leaders, to assault and stone them. Now, we're not just talking about verbal persecution and insult. Now, we're talking about physical damage to their bodies. Stone. Being hit by stones is a terrible thing. It'll kill you quicker than arsenic. Notice that the persecution from both Jews and Gentiles is just like what happened previously in the previous town at Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13.50. But the Jews incited the religious women of high standing and the leading men of the city. There's the Jews... The religious women, they were probably Jews, devout women, proselytes, proselytes, but also the leading men of the city who were probably Gentiles. So there you have Gentiles and Jews. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. So Paul and Barnabas had already gotten kicked out of Pisidian Antioch by the Jews and Gentiles, and that joint persecution continues here in Iconium. We go to Acts 14, 6 through 7. They found out about it, that's Paul and Barnabas, found out about it, found out about what? That an attempt, in verse 5, tells us what they found out. An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to assault and stone them. So Paul and Barnabas got out of Dodge. They fled from Iconium. In verse 6, they fled to the Lycaonian towns called Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside. And there they kept evangelizing. Now, 
you could read this as saying they went to Lystra and Derby, and later on they went back to Derby later in, in verse 21, verses 20 and 21. But I don't think so. I think this is just a, a, a summary of what they're going to be doing in Lystra and Derby, and then Luke splits out their activities in those two towns in the following verses. They went to one and then the other, in my opinion. Now, these towns, Lystra and Derby, are called Lycaonian. Lycaonian is a district east of Pisidia, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Pisidia was a province of Galatia. It was an area, I don't know if it's a, you call it a province, but it was, a, let's put it this way, a political subdivision of Galatia in the central part of the landmass of Asia Minor. It was north, Lycaonia was north of the Taurus Mountains, part of the Roman province of Galatia. Lystra itself, the first town they went to, was a Roman colony. It was the probable home of Timothy, according to both of those tidbits come from the NIV Study Bible. Timothy was well known in Iconium as well, but the scholars speculate that Timothy was from Lystra, although it's not explicitly stated anywhere. Lystra was 20 miles from Iconium. So after they got kicked out of Iconium, after they found out about the possible assault and stoning in Iconium, they headed to Lystra 20 miles away. Now they're 130 miles from Antioch of Pisidia. Now Derby, which we'll mention in the next audio, is mentioned here. It's about 60 miles from Lystra. So we see that Antioch, Lystra, and Derby are sort of close together, within 100, 160 miles. 130, excuse me, between around in a 130 mile an hour radius there, from Pisidian Antioch to Lystra to Derby. Lystra being about 60 miles from Derby. Now, what's Derby famous for? Well, it's the home of Gaius, one of Paul's traveling companions. We read this in Acts 20, verse 4. He, Paul, was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby. Of course, we don't know much about him, but he's mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. Now, notice that verse 6, back in our text here, Acts 14, 6, says that they, Paul and Barnabas, this is verse 7, I'm sorry, Acts 14, verse 7. They, Paul and Barnabas, kept evangelizing. So, now we know that Paul and Barnabas are both called apostles, and they're called evangelists. We don't have to be so rigid as to divide gifts up between people such that one person can only have one gift. That doesn't work. Paul and Barnabas were evangelists as well as apostles. Evangelists get people saved. Apostles organize those saved people into churches. Notice they were also evangelizing not just in the city, but in the countryside too, the surrounding countryside in verse 6. We go to verse eight, nine, verses 8, 9, and 10 in Acts 14. In Lystra, a man without strength in his feet, lame from birth, and who had never walked, sat and heard Paul speaking. After observing him closely and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he, the lame man, jumped up and started to walk around. Now, first of all, notice that Paul observed something. He observed that the lame man had faith to be healed after Paul had preached. He heard Paul speaking, and so the lame man, his Paul's words engendered faith in the, in the lame man. Now, Paul responded to that by praying for him to be healed. Now, this verse shows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that one's faith is a factor in whether one is healed or not. Now, I know that that message has been abused horribly by the faith message. I've been around that enough to know. It, it's turned into a formula. It's turned into 
impersonal laws rather than the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, uh, uh, personal communication with Jesus. It's turned into a faith formulas. It's turned into a work. I know all about the abuses, but I'm not looking at an abuse here. I'm looking at the scripture, and I'm looking at what Paul did. He saw the faith of that man, and the man had faith. He believed Jesus, and he was healed. And, buddy, he wasn't healed with just a small miracle. He was lame from birth. When you're lame from birth, that's a bigger miracle when you get healed from that because you never, you've never known how to walk. I have had miraculous power from the Holy Spirit roll down my left leg as it was somebody prayed for it to lengthen it out when I was about to lose my faith. And I know that electric feeling like hot boiling oil blowing, flowing through your bones. And I, I so I can picture that when I see this man. I, I can see that hot boiling electrical energy flowing through his legs as his legs straighten up and become strengthened. Why did Paul say in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet? Because Paul, this is my interpretation here, Paul is not only interested in seeing that man healed, he's interested in evangelism, because remember, signs and wonders go along with the teaching, which goes along with getting people saved. Signs and wonders are signposts that lead people to heaven. It's an evangelistic tool, and Paul is wants to evangelize these people here in Lystra. So he says, in a loud voice, so they can all hear it, so they can all see, so they can have all have their attention drawn to this miracle that's about to be done. And the man jumped up and started to walk around. Oh, that's a testimony there. Hard to deny that. How did this man get faith? Two ways. First of all, as Adam Clark points out, he heard the word preached by Paul. There's no question, because it says, the man who was lame from birth, in verse 9, heard Paul speaking. And so the implication is he heard speaking. That's how he had faith to get healed. Another way the man had faith, he probably heard of the earlier miracles done by Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. That's the verse I've already read to you, Acts 14.3. So they stayed there, this is back in Iconium, for some time and spoke boldly in reliance on the Lord who testified to the message of his grace by granting that signs and wonders be performed through them. Signs and wonders, folks. Nothing wrong with that. Unless you're a cessationist, in which case you've just shut God out of doing a lot of evangelistic work, which is really a crying shame. It's a good thing that God's going to get his elect saved, even despite the failures of the church, because he will. But still, from our point, from our human point, wouldn't it be nice if we did miracles, if we did evangelism like the early apostles did? Wouldn't it be nice? This lame man was sitting now. He's not, there's no mention of a synagogue in Lister. This man was probably sitting in the street. Of course, he was sitting because he was lame. Maybe there weren't enough Jews there to form a synagogue. I don't know. We go to verse verses 11 through 12 in Acts 14. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices. Now, these are Gentiles now. They raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. This is a dialect. Lycaonian language is some kind of local dialect. The gods have come down to us in the form of men. Of course, the gods they're referring to was Paul and Barnabas. Verse 12, and they started to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the main speaker. Now, why would they call Barnabas Zeus? Well, probably because Zeus was the big, muscular, top dog god, and Barnabas was bigger than Paul. We read, I think it's in First Second Corinthians. I forgot where. I don't have the verse in front of me. Of me. Paul was complaining about his opponents who said his appearance was unimpressive and his speech contemptible, if I remember correctly, which makes it sound like Paul's kind of a short guy. And Barnabas is the big guy, so they called him Zeus. Now, Paul was the main speaker. 
That's why they call Paul Hermes, because he, Paul, was the main speaker. Hermes was the messenger god, Mercury in the Latin form. Zeus, of course, is Jupiter in the Roman form. But Hermes, of course, we're in a Greek territory here, so they're, they're using, the local people use the Greek form of the gods. And Hermes was a messenger god, and so that made it reasonable that Paul would be called Hermes because he was speaking. Hermes was the general attendant of, of Zeus, and so it looks like here that Paul is attending to Barnabas. And so they thought, whoa, this is Hermes and Zeus. We see miracles. We see one person speaking for the other person, just like Hermes and Zeus did. Not to mention, according to the NIV Study Bible, there was an ancient legend in the area that told of a supposed visit of Zeus and Hermes to the area. And according to that legend, no one recognized them except an old couple. And now perhaps the listeners were determined not to let this oversight happen again. The old couple were the only people that saw Zeus and Hermes before, but now we see them. So we're going to give honor to the gods. Now isn't that something? You got an evangelistic message. You heal somebody in the name of Jesus. And instead of getting people saved, the people start wanting to worship an idol. Worship people. Well, not an idol, actually. They wanted to worship the Greek gods. Kind of ironic. Unintended consequence. Now, notice that Paul is the main speaker now. So that shows that Paul is sort of either he was more eloquent and is or more learned or more skilled in his evangelistic delivery, or it was just at this one place he was the main speaker. Paul and Barnabas might have switched off on and off. It could be because Paul was more learned in the Hebrew Scriptures. I don't know, but here he was the main speaker, it gives, and it gives an indication that Paul was the leader of the two. Most people generally consider that Paul was the leader of this evangelistic, of this, uh, excuse me, of this first apostolic journey. We go to verse 13 of, in Acts 14. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, remember we're in Lystra now, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He, with the crowds, intended to offer sacrifice. Now, gates in the Greek can refer either to city gates, temple gates, or house gates. I think it's city gates here because the temple was outside of, town, of the town, so he came to the gates of the city to, in, to offer sacrifice inside the town. Or it could be he brought oxen and garlands to the gates of the temple right outside the town because I guess a temple's a logical place to offer sacrifice. I'm not really sure, but where, whatever he did... The priest was accompanied by the crowds, and they're getting ready to praise Zeus and to praise Hermes. Now, notice that all, I say all, I can't imagine an early Greek town not having a patron god, a patron deity. They all did. Athens, as we know, was Athena's. Athens had Athena as its patron goddess, and Lystra had Zeus as its patron god. Now, these priests brought garlands to the gates. Here's some options as to why they brought those garlands. I'm compiling this from John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. The garlands could have been used to crown the gods that were being sacrificed to, so they were getting ready to put those garlands of flowers on Paul and Barnabas's head. Or they might have wanted to crown the priests doing the sacrificing of the animals. Or they might have wanted to crown the altar on which the sacrifice was being made. Or maybe they wanted to crown the temple gates, assuming gates here meant temple gates, crown the temple gates with flowers. Or maybe they wanted to crown the animals themselves being sacrificed too. So it's hard to know. But here's Adam, what Adam Clark says about that. Quote, the, he says that it's to crown the animals with garlands. Quote, oxen adorned with flowers, their horns gilded, and neck bound about with fillets. 
that's a band or a ribbon, a fillet is, and neck bound about with fillets as was the custom in sacrificial rites. Well, whatever. They were prepared for sacrifice, and it was quite obvious. Verse, verses 14 and 15 of Acts 14. The apostles Barnabas and Paul, notice now that Barnabas and Paul are both called apostles. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing these things? Notice they rushed into the crowd. They took the bull by the horns, man. They went straight in and said, Stop, 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 stop. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you, i.e. the same sinful nature, the same well, actually, he wasn't talking about sinful nature. He was talking about human nature as opposed to divine nature. We are men also with the same nature as you, and we are proclaiming good news to you. Good news, of course, is the gospel, that you should turn from these worthless things. He calls the oxen, the garlands, the idols, the Zeus and Hermes and all, all that has just been mentioned. He calls them worthless. Think about that. They're getting ready to sacrifice to them as a god, and he calls their religion worthless. You should turn, we have been proclaiming good news to you, that you should turn from these worthless, th worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. And what he's talking about, he's implying here, and it doesn't say who's speaking here, either Barnabas and Paul or both. Roughly what they're saying is, it's the living God as opposed to the dead gods of Zeus and Hermes. They're not alive, but God is. The living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, which implies that there's a supreme God who made those idols, who made those oxen, who made that temple, who made who made everything. Zeus and Hermes didn't make everything. They were made themselves. They aren't the creators. They are the created. So basically, they give their little anti-idol speech here. They tore their robes, which is the Jewish way of expressing great grief, as the NIV study Bible says. Now, notice how brave... Paul and Barnabas are. These people were getting ready to sacrifice, and now they are rushing in and saying, hey, what you're doing is worthless. Ooh, seeker-friendly. Notice that here, Barnabas is mentioned first, the apostles Barnabas and Paul. Why is he mentioned first? Is it because he's greater than Paul? No. Because, probably because he was the one that was thought to be the chief deity, Zeus, and so they mentioned him first. And the point here is, we can't, we cannot squeeze a lot of meaning out of word order in a list. For example, how the feminists always say Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla's listed first, therefore she was the leader. Well, actually in one place, Aquila, at least one place, Aquila is listed first before Priscilla. So does that prove that Aquila is the leader? It doesn't prove anything. It proves that somebody has to go first in a list. We go now to verses 16 through 18 in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas continue their speech to the Lystrans. In past generations, he, that's God, allowed all the nations to go their own way. The nations, of course, is the Gentiles. To go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he, God, did what is good by giving you, the Gentiles, the nations, rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, and satisfying your hearts with food and happiness. Even though they said these things, even though Paul and Barnabas said these things, verse 18, they, Paul and Barnabas, barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them, to Paul and Barnabas. So the Gentiles went their own way, Paul and Barnabas said. That means they went their way without law and without prophets. They only had the law of nature. But they could have responded to that law of nature because they all knew God, but they suppressed the knowledge of God, but they didn't pay attention. Well, Paul cannot appeal to their belief in the prophets or in their belief in the law, like he could to Jews, but he could appeal to their knowledge of nature. 
And notice, I've always noticed this, you know, when you appeal to nature, you're really appealing to the good side of nature, you know, rain and fruitful seasons and food and happiness. Yeah, that's when everything's going right, but when there's earthquakes and storms and floods and droughts, nature can be pretty much, can make you pretty miserable. But Paul doesn't worry about that. Of course, that's because of the effects of sin on the earth, the curse that's on the earth. Paul doesn't worry about that. He appeals to what he needs to appeal to. Hey, God gave you all this stuff that you that you grow to feed yourself with. Anyway, so he's he's told them that idols are worthless. He's appealed to nature and say God made that in nature, so you need to believe in him. And, but verse 18 says, even though Paul and Barnabas said these things, Paul and Barnabas barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. So they didn't seem too put off by having their idols called worthless. They're still trying to worship Paul the Zeus. This is, just, this is the strangest reaction to a gospel message I think I've ever heard. It's really weird. I've never heard of anything like this. Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Iconium was the previous city visited. Antioch was the next previous city. That's Pisidian Antioch. Not the one in Syria, but the one in Pisidia, central Galatia, center in the central part of Asia Minor. Then these Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they had won over the crowds and stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Apparently, Jews went from city to city harassing Paul. They were really upset with the gospel message. And again, did Jesus say they're going to persecute you from synagogue to synagogue? Now think about this. The crowds had just finished trying to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as a as gods and now they stoned him the crowd was fickle the Jews turned them very very quickly here's some similar instances of crowd fickleness how about on Palm Sunday the crowds are yelling to Jesus Hosanna Hosanna to the king that was Sunday by that Friday good Friday they're yelling crucify him crucify him now, it could be different parts of the crowd at different times. I realize that. But in general, if you look at the crowd as, as a general whole, it changed. How about the people of Malta thought he was a murderer when he was bitten by a viper? Then they thought he was a god when he didn't die. Acts 28, 4 through 6, when the local people, this is Paul on his way to Rome after his third journey. When the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, the viper, the snake, they said to one another, this man is probably a murderer, and though he has escaped the sea, justice does not allow him to live. However, he shook Paul, shook the creature off into the fire, and suffered no harm. They expected that he would swell up or suddenly drop dead. But after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So yes, crowds are very, very fickle. We want to kill him. No, let's worship him. It's interesting here in Lystra that Paul was not stoned. Paul was stoned, but Barnabas was not stoned. Why? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculated it's because Paul was the chief speaker, and so they stoned him because he was the one talking the most. Which, if that's true, that shows that with leadership comes responsibility. Clark is just puzzled by this. He says this, It is strange that neither the young converts at Lister nor Barnabas were involved in this persecution. Not only did they not stone Barnabas, they didn't stone all the converts that were at Lister. These Jews that followed Paul on into Lister were probably the same who had raised the persecution against Paul and Barnabas at Iconium and Antioch, according to Adam Clark. So you see, everywhere Paul went, Iconium, Antioch, Lister, Jews persecuted Paul. Now, notice these, after they stoned Paul, they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Now, thinking he was dead, does that mean they were thinking correctly that he was dead or thinking erroneously that he was dead? In other words, was Paul dead or alive as they dragged him out of the city? It's real hard to say. 
It's hard to tell. Now, dragging him out of the city was probably to show dishonor on the corpse. So they dragged him through the streets. So that's pretty bad. So even if he was stoned, he was half dead. Then dragging through the streets behind a horse or behind a, well, maybe not behind a horse, but <laughs> however they were dragging Paul through the city, that probably was pretty hard on his health. He, he very well could have been dead. If that's so, then, of course, then when Paul came back to the city, he was resurrected, which is a big miracle. Adam Clark thinks that he was still alive. Excuse me, John Gill thinks that Paul was still alive. Adam Clark says he was he was dead. Paul was dead. So it was a split of opinion on that. Now notice who stoned Paul here. The crowds, those are the Gentiles, and then the Jews who had followed Paul from Antioch and Iconium. There doesn't seem to have been a Jewish contingent in Lystra. There wasn't a synagogue. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, when they had won over the crowds, that would be the Gentiles, they stoned Paul. So once again, we got complicity between Gentiles and Jews in opposing the gospel. This is was predicted by Jesus. Matthew 10:23. Jesus talking to his uh, disciples, his apostles, when they persecute you in one town, escape to another. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, he was talking about persecution in Israel, going from town to town, which is like in Israel, so in the diaspora, because it's happening as he goes from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra. Matthew 24, 9, Olivet Discourse. Jesus tells the uh, four of the apostles, Then they will hand you over for persecution, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, all nations, there are the Gentiles. So G Jesus predicted persecution by Gentiles as well as by Jews. And it's all coming to pass. It just shows the bravery of these apostles. Acts 14.20, after the disciples after the disciples surrounded him, surrounded Paul, he, Paul, got up and went into the town, went into Lystra. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. I guess again, he decided, Perse you going to persecute me? I'm out of here. Got out of Dodge. And that just shows that the apostles were practical people. They didn't just stand there and say, hey, throw some more stones at us and kill us. They wanted to stay alive so they could keep preaching the gospel. There was this crazy idea in the Middle Ages that if you became a martyr, you were somehow specially favored by God, and therefore let's go out and get ourselves killed. That's not martyrdom, folks. That's suicide, which is a sin. But anyway, now when Paul got up and left with Barnabas for Derby, they might have carried Timothy along with them because many scholars think that Lister is where Timothy was born. The NIV Study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that young Timothy may have been present as they left for Derby. Here's an example of why they might think that. 2 Timothy 3, 10-11, Paul is writing Timothy later on, and, he's, and Paul says this, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patient, love, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. What persecutions he endured, where did he endure them? Well, the three previous towns that he mentions in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11, the three previous towns mentioned are Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. So it sounds like, it's, it can't be proven, but it sounds like since Timothy is following Paul's teaching, etc., and that Timothy is following the persecutions and sufferings that came to Paul, and the place that those persecutions and sufferings came to Paul was in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. It sounds like Paul and Timothy was there in one of those towns. Now, I don't know how you narrow it down to Lystra, but the scholars seem to think he came from Lystra. All right, we're finished with Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Lystra. We see the next day 
Paul leaves with Barnabas for Derby in verse 20, and we'll take up Derby in the next audio. But before we do, let's look at the fact that the disciples surrounded Paul. This is after they got him when he had been dragged out of the city, stoned, left for dead. They were probably going to dishonor his corpse by leaving him outside the city so the vultures could get it. Really peachy people these persecuting Jews were. Why did the disciples surround him? Here are some options as to why. To weep over him, to pray for his recovery, to take care of him, all of the above. That's what they were doing. They were looking after their apostles, these young converts. Now when Paul got up and went back into town, can you imagine what a shock that was for the listeners? My gosh, we just left you for dead out there. The vultures ought to be pecking your eyes out. And here you are walking around town. They might have thought maybe that maybe he really was Hermes. But at any rate, he got up, which shows that he was healed miraculously, either if he was half dead or all the way dead. doesn't matter. It's an amazing miracle that he got up. And it certainly took a lot of guts to go back into the town that had just killed him or tried to kill him. You can imagine their shock. So Paul left, and it looked like Paul lost here. The Jews won, and Paul lost. Well, not really. Paul won in Derby in the next verse, which we'll take up in the next audio. It says that there were many disciples converted in verse 21. We already see we we see that already Paul has in Iconium converted a great number. Acts 14:43. After the synagogue, this is the one in Iconium, had been dispensed, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. To continue in the grace of God sounds like these devout proselytes had gotten saved. And then, of course, there was success in the, in the next previous town of Pisidian Antioch, Acts 14, 1, second half of the, verse, of the verse. Luke says this, A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. A great number. Now, there's no mention in Lister of converts being, built, uh, being saved. However, in the next two verses, 21 and 22, Lystra is mentioned as being on the return trip of Paul and Barnabas and having disciples who were strengthened. Well, if these disciples were strengthened, that means there must be some converts there. Let me read that, verse 21 and 22. After they, Paul and Barnabas, had evangelized that town and made many disciples, evangelized Derby, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples. Now, it could be that the disciples were only in Iconium and Antioch, I find that hard to believe. I'm sure there were some disciples at Lystra. So they encouraged them to continue in the faith. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll take up the story of Paul and Barnabas and Derby in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.